Okay, just a reminder about Camp Arete uh, coming up on July 14th to 20th, and then the rescheduling of Vacation Bible, Bible School, which would be immediately after that, 9 to 12 a.m. on that Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday. Contact Mark Friedrich if, you're, if you can help. Uh, also, if you're interested in helping out in prep school. Also, take a look at the uh, DBM website. We're still negotiating on different things, arranging different things related to scheduling and things of that nature, so we don't have the final information up yet. I think that that should cover it. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him, and he shall direct your paths. They that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not grow weary. They shall walk and not faint. Fear thou not, for I am with thee. Be not dismayed, for I am thy God. I will strengthen thee, yea, I will help thee. Yea, I will uphold thee with the right hand of my righteousness. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known unto God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, shall defend your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Thou wilt keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on thee, because he trusteth in thee. For the grass withers, and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. We'll have a few moments of silent prayer. We need to make sure that we're in right relationship with the Lord, ready to uh, study the word. Scripture teaches that we are to walk with the Lord, which means we are to have him as a vital part of our life. We talk about the term, the Christian walk is just a term for the Christian life. Walking is a metaphor for life. And so that walking with the Lord is a a metaphor, a phrase, an idiom for our life with the Lord, but that gets uh, corrupted when we sin, just like it does with our own parents. If we are disobedient to them, then we aren't enjoying the all of the benefits and blessings of that that relationship. But when we confess sin, then that is restored and we can go forward walking by the Spirit. So we'll have a few moments of silent prayer to give you the opportunity to confess sin if necessary, which means simply to admit or acknowledge our sin to God in silent prayer. And then I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, we're grateful that we have you to come to. We're grateful that in your omniscience, you know everything that's going on in our lives. You know our innermost thoughts. You have known these things from eternity past. Nothing we do surprises you. Nothing we do is anything that upsets the plan that you have for us. You are overseeing, overriding all things. And Father, we're so thankful that we have you to guide, direct us, to protect us, even when we're disobedient, even when we are in uh, profound spiritual rebellion and failure. Nevertheless, you are always watching over us, caring for us, and working to bring us back to a close union of fellowship with yourself as we walk with you. Father, we 
pray for our country. We pray for our leaders. We pray for their wisdom. We pray that you might keep us secure as a nation and give an understanding of that to people who are in leadership. We pray that uh, judges that oversee these vital cases related to the First Amendment uh, would understand the issues and continue to protect and uphold the Founders' meanings in the uh, First Amendment and all of the amendments. Father, we pray for us tonight that we, as we study your faithfulness, as we study about the way in which you have worked to preserve and protect Israel in the past gives us great confidence in how you will work to preserve and protect us today. And we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. All right, let's open our Bibles to uh, Psalm 89. We're continuing our study of the Davidic covenant and the implications of the Davidic covenant, and especially in this particular psalm. As we've studied in the previous couple of weeks, it was written by Ethan the Ezraite. Last time I talked about the fact that he is a contemporary of Solomon. We don't know exactly how their lives overlapped, but by the time the writer of uh, 1 Kings is writing things down, he knows his audience is aware of who Ethan is, and he compares uh, Solomon's wisdom to that of Ethan the Ezraite, that it's much greater. And so we know that he is a man listed in, in Chronicles as well, and that he was a spiritual leader in Israel. And God the Holy Spirit uh, breathed these scriptures out through him on the basis of his experience. And it is a reflection on the Davidic covenant, and he is doing something that he may have observed in Solomon, as we'll see tonight, in terms of taking the promises that are in the Davidic covenant and praying to God about those promises, t talking about his concerns, his worries, his anxieties that, that God's promises were being threatened, and calling upon God to intercede in the historical affairs of Israel so that the house of David would be secure, stable, and protected. It's a great model for us in understanding the faith rest drill, that is our trust in God. And that term, faith rest drill, three terms emphasize three different things brought together. The first is faith, which is trust in God, where we are mixing promises with our faith. We're trusting God. Second word, rest, doesn't mean we're just completely passive. It means that we're resting in God's provision. We are waiting upon him but in the meantime, we're doing what God says for us to do. Uh, somewhat mundane illustration is you can pray all day long that certain chores around your house that you really don't want to do will get done. Maybe it's cutting the grass or uh, painting the house, whatever it may, may be. But at some point, you have to engage in performing your responsibilities, and God's going to take care of the, of the rest of it. So prayer and faith always involves putting into God's hands that which belongs in God's hands, but on the other side, we fulfill our biblically defined responsibilities. Uh, we're resting in him to uh, bring about the outcome, but that doesn't mean we just sit on our uh, hands and not do anything. So, And it's a drill because it's something we have to learn to practice over and over and over again whenever there's a, a circumstance, no matter how minor 
we learn to practice that claim promises, which of course implies that you know promises and that we are ready to apply them. So we're looking at the Davidic covenant. Remember, there's three components to the Davidic covenant, a promise of an eternal house, a promise of an eternal kingdom, and a promise of an eternal throne. This means that there are specific promises stated that God would do for David and God would do for his descendants, culminating in an eternal descendant who would rule over an eternal kingdom from the throne in, um, throne in Jerusalem. So Ethan is taking these, these promises that are in, in the Davidic covenant, and he's applying them to his specific circumstances. So when we structure the psalm, the first part of the psalm, the first 18 verses, are focusing on God's character, who God is, what he has done in the past that demonstrates that character. And what we'll see whenever we have these examples in the Bible, where uh, whether it's Moses, whether it's Abraham, Moses, David, whomever, when they are praying promises to God, they always talk about what he has done in the past how he has fulfilled his promises in the past as a part of their rationale or their argument in presenting their case to God of why he should enact today. So there is a focus on the attributes of God, on his character. The love is his chesed love, his his uh, faithful, loyal love, specifically, usually in relation to covenant promises. So it's a love that is promise Based that God has limited himself in such a way that he is going to make promises and then he is binding himself to complete and to fulfill those promises. The next division goes from Psalm 89, 19 to 37, where the psalmist is looking at the promises in the covenant itself, and he is using those as the basis for his request to God, stating his petition. And then in the last part, there's that cry to God that though there is a a situation that threatens the monarchy, threatens the line of David, that God is called upon to remain faithful to his promises to David, even though there's, because of sin and because of failure in the line of David, or in the in Israel, that God is still going to fulfill that covenant and that he will not cancel that covenant. So we're still in the first section, and I had thought we would get through that section fairly quickly, but there's a lot in this psalm. I intuitively knew that from reading it in the past, which is one reason why I really didn't think I would get into it to begin with. And today was one of those fun days when I said, oh, I think I can cover that in 10 minutes and started studying. And an hour later, I thought, oh, I've got to really speed up my studying today because there is so much here that I think I'm going to have to cover. So we have this first section, verse 18 verses, then Psalm 89, 1 through 4, we covered last time, which emphasizes and parallels God's covenant loyalty, his covenant loyal love to God's faithfulness. And then in the second section, Psalm 89, 5 through 18, 
we're going to see how this is tied to, A, his attributes, how God's omnipotence is connected to his faithfulness. And then we're going to see how the, the focus of Ethan takes God's faithfulness and his omnipotence, and he connects it to the angelic conflict. And so all of a sudden, we realize that all of these covenants with Israel, God's whole relationship with Israel, is an integral part of the angelic conflict, and that is what um, what is often the ultimate enemy of God's plan, uh, generates uh, first and foremost with Satan. So we get into Psalm 89, 5 to 18, and Psalm 89, 5, it's really a call to praise God, that he will be praised because of his character, because of who he is. And then in verses 6 to 8, he's praised for his omnipotence, his unique and awesome power and his incredible works, and how this displays his greatness over all of the angelic hosts, the fallen angels as well as the uh, holy angels. And then in verses 9 through 14, we'll see how God is praised for his omnipotence and his sovereign rule over all his creation, including Satan and the fallen, fallen angels. Now, if we get down to verse 10, it will be a miracle this evening. But I think that, that we're going to get into a lot of good new material. And then the last uh, four verses, we have the Lord blesses those who walk with him and glory in his righteousness and strength. So that brings us to a conclusion for the, these first 18 verses. So we're in, we've covered the first four verses, and we've looked at the faith rest drill. Uh, claiming a promise where we mix our faith with a promise. We quote the whole scripture, or maybe we just know a phrase or a line, or sometimes we haven't learned that, we haven't memorized scripture as we ought, and we're just capturing some principle that is derived from scripture. But whenever we look at examples in the Bible of the faith rest drill, we see people quoting scriptures, quoting scriptural phrases. They they are holding God to what ex- he has said. What's important there is you have to make sure that you're reading your own mail. You don't want to read somebody else's mail and God's promise to your next door neighbor and claim it for yourself. That often happens when you hear people claiming Old Testament verses and you think, you go back and look at the context and realize That wasn't written to the church. That is specifically a promise that is based on the the Davidic covenant or the Abrahamic covenant or the Mosaic covenant. It really doesn't apply directly to church-age believers. However, there may be implications there that certain general principles that, that uh, that can be transferred over. The second step, we then think through what the doctrinal rationale is. And what we have in these, and we're going to look at Psalm 89 tonight. We're going to go back and we're going to look at some things in Job. We're going to look at Psalm 74. We'll never get to Psalm 77. Not tonight, but we'll get back there. And we'll see how over and over again in all these passages, we're going to see the same thing. We're even going to take a a trip along with First uh, Kings chapter six and the parallels over in Second Chronicles, and see how often the same rationale is used 
which is related to the essence of God, looking at his character and then building our petitions to God on the basis of his, his uh, character. And then we apply those to our situation, coming with the conclusion where we're, where we're basically calling upon God, this is what you said, this is a situation, this is how it applies, and this is what I expect you to do. And so we're not telling God what to do. It's not a name it, claim it kind of thing, but it is building a case for why your prayer ought to be answered. And we see the same kind of thing happening in the, um, in, in the New Testament. So uh, this is where we're starting. We'll be in this, mostly in this section, uh, to be uh, Psalm 89, 5 through 18, where God's unique and awesome character especially as righteousness, faithfulness, justice, and omnipotence are, are extolled. So we'll begin with verse 5, where the Lord will be praised, and then in verse 2, getting into its relationship in verses 6 through 8 with the angelic hosts. So we'll start off in Psalm 89, verse 5. And here we read, And the heavens will praise your wonders, O Lord, your faithfulness also in the assembly of the saints. Now, that is a packed verse for a number of reasons. And as we get into this, what we're going to see is this comes out of those first four verses, which have focused on two attributes. And we see it, we talked about the synonymous parallelism of the of the Hebrew poetry here, where the first verse states a more general principle, I will sing of the mercies of the Lord forever. In the second verse, it restates those ideas, but with terms that are usually a little more specific. Singing is a little broader than, with my mouth I will make known. So that's the focus of singing. It is to make something known. It is related to the idea of revelation so that what we are singing, and this has application to uh, hymns that we sing, is what we are singing is that which expresses what God has revealed and what he has done. I will sing of the mercies of the Lord forever. With my mouth I will make known your faithfulness. So mercies of the Lord, that's hesed. It's a broad term for God's covenant, faithful loyalty. And then you have the word faithfulness, which is a narrower term. And again, you have those same same synonyms in verse 2, mercy and faithfulness. It's interesting how faithfulness is picked up again and again throughout this whole psalm. And here it is seen as a subdivision or subset of God's chesed. His chesed is a broad term, and then faithfulness is the more narrow term. So he's faithful in his love. That is the first thing that is being being stated. And, and how is that expressed? He made a covenant with his servant David. So he entered into a covenant or contract. God made a legal agreement with David, just as he had with Abraham, as he had with the nation in the Mosaic Covenant. And then what that covenant stated is, uh, verse 4, your seed I will establish forever. And we saw last time that all through here, 
The word faithfulness, imuna, comes from a root word that has to do with, with the foundation of something. So it was a term that was used of the foundation stones that were set up under the pillars of the, of, of the first temple, of Solomon's temple. So it gives stability. It, it is that upon which uh, the temple pillars rested. So that comes over to us that in the faith rest drill, because of God's character, we can rest and relax in what he has provided. And so it, it's paralleled with the term to build up. So we have all this language here that should leave us with the impression of the strength and the power and the stability and the certainty of God. And then we come to this next section, Psalm 89, 5 through 8. And what happens as we get into this section is we'll see that after verse 8, there is a definite shift in the focus. Down through verse 8, the focus is on God and his uniqueness. God is one of a kind. The biblical word that is often used to express that is the word holy. Holy is one of those Bible words, one of those spiritual words that people lose the sense of, and and uh, and they often think it means to be morally pure, but it has the fundamental idea of being unique or distinct or set apart. So that's what is being developed in verses 5 through 8. And then there's a shift to how that was manifested, because unlike verses 1 through 4, where mercy and faithfulness were were uh, juxtaposed. Now what do we have? We have the heavens will praise your wonders, your faithfulness also in the assembly of the saints. So faithfulness is now a part of this concept of the wonder, the awesome power and acts uh, of God. And we'll have to look at that uh, particular word, and we will in just a minute. So it starts off with the phrase... And the heavens. Now, these are just, I, I just want to make some initial observations as we approach these four verses. And the, the first thing is that the term the heavens is not talking about the physical spatial universe that's filled with the stars and the galaxies and all of the different things that we see with our eyes out, out in the universe. It is talking more about the space time continuum in which all of those things exist. But it goes beyond the physical space-time continuum to that which was the eternal abode of God that is from eternity. The Bible really breaks things down in terms of three layers of the heavens. There's the first heavens, which is the earth's atmosphere, and it deals with just that which envelops our planet. The second heavens is the physical universe that is out there. And then the third heavens is the abode of God. So this is where he's talking about because it's parallel to what I have uh, colored in blue. It's parallel to the assembly of the saints. Now, that's a bad translation in the New King James because when you and I think of the saint, of a saint, we think of a Christian church-age believer. But it's just the same root idea, which is a holy one, someone set apart to God. And 
what we have here is a figure of speech that is called a, uh, a metonymy. You probably didn't learn that in high school or even college English. A metonymy is a figure of speech where one noun is used in the place of another noun. And it may involve a lot of different different uh, categories, but this is a meto- meto- what's called a metonymy of subject, where one noun, which is the place, is is substituted for what inhabits the place. So, who inhabits the heavens? Well, the angels inhabit the heavens. This is not anything that is really strange when God calls upon Israel. Uh, when our Moses calls upon Israel to to uh, the covenant to be witnessed by the heavens and the earth, he's not talking about the physical planets and stars. He's not talking about the ground, the land of the earth, the soil of the earth, and the trees and the flowers and the grass and the weeds. He's talking about the inhabitants of the heavens and the inhabitants of the earth. So this is a very common figure of speech that we have. Uh, we use it all the time, even in our our, our own language. So um, that's the focus here for, of, of metonymy. So the, the heavens here is the, sp- the place where the assembly of the holy ones takes place, and that's described in Job 1 and Job 2, where there are these convocations in the heavens where all of the angels, they're called in that passage, the sons of God, B'neha Elohim, Elohim is the word that's used for God there, which is sort of a generic term in Hebrew and Aramaic for for God as opposed to his personal name, uh, which is which is Yahweh. And it's the assembly of the saints. The Kadosh is the word there. It ultimately means that which is distinct or set apart to God. And it has the idea when applied to God also of one of a kind or unique and distinct, which really comes out in all of these verses, that it is expressing that idea that it, there is none like God. He is, he is one of a kind, and those who dwell with him are also one of a kind because they serve the Lord. So it is talking first and foremost about God in his relation to the holy ones, to the angels. In the NET note, I do not um, necessarily advocate or endorse the NET Bible. It's a New English translation. It was done by a lot of faculty members at Dallas Theological Seminary, the New Testament faculty and Old Testament faculty. One of the things that's nice about it is that it indicates where there are translation problems or other problems in dealing with uh, expressing the text. In a lot of ways, I disagree with their solution, especially in the New Testament, not always in the Old Testament, but um, I I always have a caveat here because I don't endorse this for people to uh, purchase it and use it unless you have some knowledge of Greek and Hebrew to begin with because it can lead you astray on some of these Notes it, um, but the note here states that in it's a translation note. The Hebrew is literally in the assembly of the holy ones, and it will state that in both the NET translation, I believe. Now wait a minute. In the NET translation, it it, it translates it in the um, uh, 
or the latter part of it, it translates it as the angels, the holy ones, it translates as the angels, whereas in the uh, New American Standard, it translates the holy ones as uh, the holy ones, whereas in the King James, it translates it as the saints. So it's literally correct in the New American Standard, but they they captured the sense in the NET. It's talking about about the angels. And we see this in passages such as Daniel 4.13, where Daniel says, I saw in the visions of my head while on my bed. So he's, uh, he, it's, it's a vision that God gives him while he is on his bed, and he sees an angel here called a watcher and defined as a holy one. It's in the singular. It's the same word we have in, in Psalm 89. So this is used quite a few times in the Scripture to describe the angels. So the heavens, that is, those who abide in the heavens, the angels, will praise, that is, they will boast, they will extol your wonders, O Lord. Now this is a fun word. This is the Hebrew word pele, and it is used, I think, almost exclusively for God. It is used in a very well-known passage in Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6, where it talks about the fact that, that, um, that God's name will be called Wonderful. It is a unique title given to God. Your name will be Wonderful, uh, Counselor, uh, Mighty God. All of these are, are, are titles for God. So it relates to that which God has done. Now, what's interesting is the Masoretic text, which is the standard Hebrew text, has it as a singular, in which case it would refer to God's character, the the heavens will, the and the heavens will praise your wonder that you are wondrous however in the ancient versions it has it in the plural in the translations and what's interesting when i went to dallas seminary and taught was taught hebrew this gets into a lot of detail but the bottom line was they basically basically said the masoretic text is is good you can you can go with it but that has changed in a lot of other circles. My, I, I first was uh, alerted to this through reading uh, Michael Rydelnik's book on uh, the Messianic hope, where he challenges that. And then not long after that, I was became aware of an Israeli scholar named Emmanuel Tov, who has a superior position, I believe, on doing, uh, uh, doing textual criticism not for the same reason as Rydelnik. Rydelnik argues that the Masoretes had an anti-Messianic uh, bent. So they changed things, they changed words uh, in places, and you could do that in the Hebrew by just messing with your vowels. It would make the word into something else. And the, the vowels were not inspired. It was the consonants that were inspired. Uh, so uh, anyway, Rydelnik questioned it because it changes Messianic prophecy, Emmanuel Tov challenges it because of various manuscripts that have been found in the last hundred years. We found the Dead Sea Scrolls. We found all kinds of other uh, translations that were not known 200 years ago. And they are different. Uh, the Septuagint, the, um, 
a Samaritan Pentateuch, uh, some older Greek versions, Syriac version, and when and his principle is that when these other versions agree, then that's probably a superior reading than the one that was preserved in the Masoretic text. So that would indicate if this is a plural that the focus is on God's acts, that his wondrous acts, his awesome acts demonstrate his faithfulness. Now, I think we could support that in the, in the text itself. When we get down to verse, uh, verse 8, it starts to talk about his faithfulness, uh, that he rules the raging of the sea when the waves rise, you still them. So his faithfulness is demonstrated in his acts, in his powerful, miraculous acts. And then it will talk about, you have broken Rahab in pieces. Now, what's that all about? I don't, don't remember reading that in Joshua 2, so we'll have to talk about that. You scattered your enemies with your mighty arm. So this is talking about God's miraculous acts in history. So I think that both on external evidence in terms of the, the many different versions that have a plural as well as the context that uh, the plural reading would be superior, which is what, how it was translated in the New King James Version. Now, that is, is a parallel to the word for faithfulness. So what we saw in the first opening verses is that God's mercy is the big term, and the smaller term is his faithfulness. So faithfulness of God is a part of the manifestation of his loyal love, but it's not limited to that. It is also an example of his awesome work in history because it is the acts of God in history and in our lives that demonstrate his faithfulness to us, that even when we are disloyal, he is loyal to us. Even when we deny him, he does not deny us. Even when we are faithless, he is faithful. God always uh, fulfills his promise and fulfills his word. And so uh, the wonders of God are the wonders that demonstrate his faithfulness to us, his stability, his certainty. We can count on him. And then that last phrase uh, talking about in the assembly of the, of the holy ones. Now, all of this is in many ways talking about God's, uh, God's loyalty to his covenant, God's faithfulness to his promise that he is going to do what he, uh, what he claims to do, and he is going to uh, fulfill that. So before we get into that, one last thing I want you to point out, uh, I want to point out to you, is that when we look at this section from 5 through 8, it starts off, talk, it talks about faithfulness twice. Notice it mentioned faithfulness twice in the opening four verses. And, they, and that was to focus our attention on faithfulness as an aspect of his chesed love, his covenant loyal love. Here we have faithfulness mentioned in verse 5, and then it's mentioned a second time in verse 8. The other verses sandwiched in between. Now, you know what it's like to make a sandwich. You have two pieces of bread, and so the top bread and the bottom bread are faithfulness and the real the goodies are what's in between. And that's what's going to get spelled out in verse 6 and verse 7. 
But what we see here is in these next sections is that this is going to focus on um, on God's relationship to the uh, to the angels. In verse six, they are referred to as the sons of the mighty, and in Hebrew, this is the phrase "bnei Elim," E L I M, not "bnei Elohim." Elohim is the name of God. Elim has to do with those who are mighty, and it is used to refer to. Uh, the angels in numerous other places, which we will see. But before we get into that, as we're as an introduction to the uniqueness of God, which is brought out, for example, in verse eight, O Lord God of hosts, who is mighty like you, O Lord, your faithfulness also surrounds you. Uh, the point is, the answer is no. No one is faithful like the Lord. So what I want you to do, I want to take a little rabbit trail here. So let's turn to 1 Kings uh, chapter 8. 1 Kings chapter 8. And this is Solomon's, King Solomon's prayer at the dedication of the temple. This is while Solomon is still spiritually faithful and loyal to the Lord. And chapter 8 and chapter 9 are just this phenomenal prayer of dedication. And if you work your way through it, what you realize is that Solomon is exercising the faith rest drill. He constantly is quoting from the Mosaic Law and say, and from the, uh, from the judgments, from the uh, punishments. And he's saying, okay, God, when Israel disobeys and does this, then when they turn back, you promise to do that and restore them, and I'm asking you to do that. That's what it means uh, to claim a promise. And so we see this here, uh, give, uh, the evidence of this in 1 Kings eight fifteen to 21, and it's paralleled in Second Chronicles chapters uh, 5 through 7. It just so happened that this week as I'm reading through uh, the Bible chronologically, that I was reading through these chapters, and I thought, boy, this is just such a great illustration of what I'm teaching right now in uh, in Second Samuel. So let's look at starting about verse 15 of First Kings chapter 8, uh, starting in verse 15. Let me get on the right page. Okay. So Solomon is 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 making this. Uh, speech to Israel. And he says in verse 15, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, who spoke with his mouth to my father David. What's he doing there? He's getting ready to reiterate what was in the Davidic covenant. So here he is applying the Davidic covenant to these circumstances. He says, Since the day that I brought my people Israel out of Egypt. So here he is, he is quoting what God said in the covenant. Since the day that I brought my people Israel out of Egypt, I've chosen no city from any tribe of Israel in which to build a house, that my name might be there, but I chose David to be over my people Israel. Davidic covenant stuff. Now it was in the heart of my father David, Solomon says, to build a temple for the name of the Lord God of Israel. But the Lord said to my father David, whereas it was in your heart to build a temple for my name, you did well that it was in your heart. Notice that God gives him credit for what he wanted to do, even though God said, you're not going to do it. See, that, I think that has application for us 
in that God honors our desires to do something, but it's not within his permissive will, so we're still going to get credit for that at the judgment seat of Christ. We wanted to do the right thing. It just, God said, not today, not at all. So David was prohibited from building the temple. Verse 19, nevertheless, you shall not build the temple, but your son who will come from your body will build the temple for my name. So the Lord has fulfilled his word, which he spoke, and I have fulfilled the position of my father, David. What's he doing here? He's looking at what God promised and that which had already been fulfilled, and he's looking at God's historic faithfulness because he's going to use that as the leverage with God for future fulfillment, to maintain his covenant loyalty uh, in, in the future. And so then uh, Solomon talks about the fact that he's made a place for the ark of the covenant and he's built the temple. And then in verse 22, we start with the, with the dedication. And so in verse 23, he says, and this is Solomon praying, Lord God of Israel, there is no God in heaven above or on earth below like you. What's he saying? God is unique. He's one of a kind. He is expressing the concept of holiness. There is no God in heaven above or on earth below like you who keep your covenant and mercy with your servants who walk before you with all their hearts. So he's using that term mercy, which is chesed, his covenant loyalty, that God keeps his covenant and he's loyal to it. He starts with the character of God as the foundation of the prayer that he is uh, about to pray. And he does the same thing in Second Chronicles six fourteen and 15. He said, Lord God of Israel, there's no God in heaven or on earth like you who keep your covenant and mercy with your servants who walk before you with all their hearts. You have kept what you promised your servant David, my father, Davidic covenant, uh, you, have been, you have both spoken with your mouth and fulfilled it with your hand as it is this day. So he's rehearsing what has, uh, what has been said and what has been, been done. Now, if we were to go on in 1 Kings chapter 8, he, he, this is what Solomon does. He, said, he reminds God what he has fulfilled. He says, you've kept what you promised. Your servant David, my father, you've both spoke with your mouth and fulfilled it with your hand as it is this day. We've read the parallel in First Chronic, or Second Chronicles, verse twenty-five. Therefore, therefore, what? After he's after he's reiterated what was said, what was promised by God. After he goes through how God has fulfilled this promise in the past, now he draws a conclusion. That's that doctrinal conclusion in the faith rest drill. He draws a conclusion. And he says, therefore, Lord God of Israel, now keep what you promised your servant David, my father, saying, you shall not fail to have a man sit before me on the throne of Israel, only if your sons take heed to their way, that they walk before me as you have walked before me. He's, he's saying, be true to your promise that you will keep a descendant of David on the throne. And then in verse uh, 26, this is the focus of his prayer. Now I pray, O God of Israel, let your word come true, which you have spoken to your servant David, my father. I think there's a little wordplay there on true because the root word for true and the root word for faithfulness are the same. It depends on context and, and word form as to, as to exactly what it, what it means. So that takes us, as we're at verse 6, for who in the heavens can be compared to 
the Lord, Yahweh, who can be compared to the covenant God of Israel? Who in the heavens? So that's talking again about the angelic hosts that are in the heavens. In fact, he's going to refer to God as Yahweh of hosts, that is the armies of the angels. For who in the heavens can be compared to the Lord? Who among the sons of the mighty can be likened to the Lord? So you have <clears throat> two lines, two statements in each, in each strophe. Uh, who in the heavens, that relates to the angels, they're identified as the sons of the mighty in the second strophe. The sons of the mighty, it's not the phrase B'nai Elohim. It's not the sons of God. It is the sons of those who are mighty, and this is a similar to, sometimes it's translated with lowercase gods, but it's talking about the angelic powers, as we see here in Exodus chapter 15, 11. Again, Moses here is emphasizing the holiness, the uniqueness of God. Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Is there any, are any of the angels like you? This is a real, I think, I think he's tweaking Satan in stating it this way. You have this way of stating it several times where, where, uh, David, Moses, somebody says, who's like you among the angels? See, Satan wants to be like God. That's Isaiah chapter 14, verses 12 through 14. His five I wills, the last one, I will be like God. And so here we see again and again stated in Scripture, no one is like you among the elim, which are the mighty powers, that is, God, who is like you, glorious in holiness, no one, fearful in praises, doing wonders. There's that word pele again doing wonders, doing uh, awesome deeds. It, it, it's, it's not there at all. Uh, some other verses that emphasize the uniqueness of God we, we find in Isaiah 46, 5, To whom will you liken me and make me equal, says God, and compare me that we should be alike? Who are you going to compare God to? There's nothing in God's creation. There's nothing anywhere in the universe or outside the universe that is analogous or comparable to God. He's unique. He's one of a kind. He's distinct. That's the word holy. To whom will you liken me and make me equal and compare me that we should be alike? Remember the former things long past, for I am God and there is no other. The former things long past. Remember what I've done when I brought you out of Egypt with the ten plagues. All of those different plagues from turning the water into blood, from the, the lice and the flies and the... Uh, the, all of the other things that happened, the fiery hail, all of these different things. Only God could do that. No other gods could do this. And, and in each one, he was showing that he was more powerful than the gods of the Egyptians. He says, there, there, you remember those things and how I brought you out and I brought you to Sinai and I spoke and you heard me and I gave you the law. Remember the former things long past for I am God and there is no other. That's it. He is I am God, there's no one like me. And, and what does he do? Then we have these wondrous acts. He declares the end from the beginning. He can tell everything that's going to happen in the future and everything that's happened in the past, declaring the end from the beginning and from the ancient times, things which have not been done, saying, my purpose will be established and I will accomplish all my good pleasure. Sounds like Ephesians 1, doesn't it? 
Same sort of language there. It's almost like the same person was behind the writing of all 66 books of the Bible. Deuteronomy 33, 26. There's no one like the God of Jeshurun. Jeshurun is another name for Israel who rides the heavens to help you and in his excellency on the clouds. Psalm 77, 13 through 15. Your way, O God, is in the sanctuary. Who is so great a God as our God? You are the God who does wonders. There's that word again, indicating his awesome acts in time and in history. You have declared your strength, your power, bringing in omnipotence. You have declared your omnipotence among the people. You have with your arm redeemed your people, the sons of Jacob and Joseph. I want you to notice, as you think about how you pray and how we make petitions to God, how there is this intertwining in different ways in all these psalms between the wonders of God, the greatness of God, the uniqueness of God, and his omnipotence, his strength among the peoples, that this is what we praise God for and what he has done. Psalm 106, I mean, excuse me, Psalm 86, 8. Among the gods, little g, there's none like you, O Lord, nor are there any works like your works. Nothing like you can't compare it. Who is like Yahweh our Elohim who dwells on high? Isaiah 46, 5. To whom will you liken me, God says, and make me equal and compare me that we should be alike? Jeremiah 10.6, Inasmuch as there is none like you, O Lord, you are great and your name is great in might. There pulls in omnipotence. So all of these passages are emphasizing uh, the greatness, the power of God. And then we come to Psalm 89, verse 7. God is greatly to be feared in the assembly of the saints. That word to fear is a little bit different word from one we've looked at before. It's not yare, it is sarats, which means to dread or to tremble. And this isn't in, in a negative or bad sense. This is in the sense of Isaiah in Isaiah 6, where Isaiah has this vision in the temple, and he is before the throne of God, and suddenly he is completely aware of his sinfulness, of his unworthiness, of all that he has done, he has no reason to be there, and he just cries out, Woe is me, a man of unclean lips. That's the sense uh, of dread and to tremble that we see uh, referred to in uh, Psalm 89, 89, verse 7. And then we come to verse 8. All of this is sandwiched together. We've seen the meat now, which is about the power of God, his wondrous deeds, his uniqueness, and his omnipotence. Uh, we see this here. He's addressed in his title, O Yahweh, uh, Elohim Tabaoth, the term, not Sabbath, it sounds like it, but it's a different, different word, different spelling. Tabaoth is, is what we have in A Mighty Fortress is Our God. It means a lord of the armies. Host is an antiquated term for a military force. O Lord God of hosts, who is mighty like you, who is omnipotent. There's only one who is omnipotent. It is Yahweh. Your faithfulness, Emunah, always surrounds you. So this idea of his faithfulness 
in relation to his omnipotence now is what is sandwiched in between uh, 5 and 8. It went from the parallel of faithfulness and hesed in 1 and 2 to faithfulness as a manifestation of his, uh, as faithfulness manifests his wonders, that is a wondrous act of God that he's faithful to his covenant. And here his faithfulness is a manifestation of his omnipotence and of his power. He is omnipotent. God is so powerful that he can be faithful to fulfill every promise to you. Think about that. God has made these awesome promises to us, and he's powerful enough that he can actually carry it out and fulfill it. And so we don't have to be concerned. We don't have to worry about it at all. So Psalm uh, 89.8, O Yahweh, God of hosts, God of the armies, who is mighty like you? Who has the power that you have? Your faithfulness surrounds you. Now we're going to shift gears. I don't know how far we'll get into this. We may just start and then come back and develop it some more next time. This is a topic that uh, I bet you have not been taught in the past. I know I have not touched on this at all, and I know that very few others have taught it. I have heard some of my seminary professors teach it, and I think they taught it wrong. And uh, we did have a paper that was presented at the Chafer Conference back around 2007 or 8 by uh, Pastor Mark Perkins at Front Range Bible Church, who had done a lot of work on this this topic, and that was also published as a two-part article a few years earlier in the in the Chafer Journal. And and Mark did an outstanding job uh, handling that this whole issue, and. It's introduced in Psalm 89.9, and it's a manifestation of God's power. Now we're getting into examples of how uh, of the might of God and uh, how he uh, uses that might over his creation. Now, if you read this just as the average uh, pew sitter uh, without a lot of comprehension of what was going on in the ancient world or what was going on in the history of Israel, uh, you may not catch what's really being said here. You ruled the raging of the sea. While its waves rise, you still them. And the Hebrew word here is the word yam. Now, the a yam is a saltwater sea. And so there's a picture here of saltwater sea. There's no saltwater sea in the eternal state, in, in, in the future kingdom. Uh, it's all freshwater. That saltwater seems to be associated uh, to some degree with evil. The sea itself is associated with evil. We can think about prophetic passages such as, um, such as Daniel. Uh, in Daniel chapter uh, 7, it is the, the, these creatures that come out of the sea, and those creatures represent the four basic kingdoms of man in their viciousness, in their tyranny, in their evil. We get into passages in, um, in Revelation, and we get into those passages, and also we see the same thing. I think it's in Revelation chapter 13, the same beast. It's, it's developing the imagery of Daniel 7 too. These same beasts come out of the sea. The sea is the source 
of these evil nations that seek to domineer and tyrannize man. But God is the one who rules over them. So the sea, in some passages, simply means the sea. But in other passages, there's a negative spiritual overtone to the sea as the source of evil, as the source of chaos. And uh, then it says, when its waves rise, you still them. So, so the, the subtext here is that God is in control of even the evil forces that oppose him. And that's what's developed in, in the next couple of verses. Uh, you have broken Rahab in pieces as one who is slain. You have scattered your enemies with your mighty arm. So if the second line, you've scattered your enemies with your mighty arm, is an explanation and is parallel to the first line about broken Rahab, breaking Rahab into pieces, then breaking Rahab into pieces is talking about uh, an enemy that has been scattered. So we have to ask this question of who in the world is Rahab? Now, the Rahab that most people think of when we look at just the, our English spelling and the English word, we think of Rahab the prostitute back in Judges, I mean Joshua uh, chapter 2. Uh, but that's not this Rahab. Uh, this Rahab, if you can see what's up here on the screen, there's a difference between the middle letter in the Hebrew here. Uh, there's an opening opening at the top of this middle letter right here, that is the Hebrew letter He. It's like our letter H. The proper name of the lady in Joshua 2 is Rahav, and it's a hard C-H. It is the Hebrew letter Chet, and so that is a difference. This is a proper name. It also, the Masoretes added different vowel points, so the vowels are different, uh, the difference between Rahav and Rehav uh, would be how you would uh, distinguish that pronunciation. So obviously, this Rahav is completely different from the person that is identified by her name back in Judges. And so this is speaking about a partic- some, something related to evil. So what can we learn about this Rahav? Because you'll see it show up in several passages. Uh, term shows up in Job 9.13. We'll have to look at that. Job 26.12. Psalm 89.10, where we are. Also Isaiah 51.9. So that's your term. And most of the time when you read it, what did you do when you read that? I don't understand it. Move on. You just skipped over it, and I'm I'm not sure what that means. And that's how you should do things that you read in Scripture because we all learn and grow at different rates at different times. So now you're going to get this down, and those who aren't here are just going to miss it. So this term in its noun form and in its verb form has to do with someone who is proud and arrogant. Now, pop quiz time. Who's the most arrogant person in the Bible? Isaiah, I've already talked about it. Isaiah chapter 14, 12 to 14. 
I will rise above the clouds of the heavens. I will rise above the mountains. I will rise uh, above everything. I will be like God. It's, it's Lucifer. It's Satan. This was his great sin of arrogance. He wanted to replace God. So the most arrogant, proud person in the Bible is Lucifer. So Rahab becomes a term that is an allusion to Satan. So this is where we get into this whole idea of the angelic conflict here. Now, we've, uh, Ethan has already introduced us to the angels. Now he's going to introduce us to this individual who is the source of all of this, uh, this particular evil. Now, I've got a quote up here from the Theological Word Book of the Old Testament about the verb that says, the verb occurs only four times in the Old Testament and signifies storming at or against something. The fundamental idea of Rahab appears in the proverb, make sure thy friend literally storm him. Now, I'll put this up here in a minute because this is just seems like a really strange translation and concept here. And, and the writer here says it denotes a tempestuous and then an arrogant attitude. So I have uh, Proverbs 6.3 up here. The first one is New King James. The second one is the NET. And in the last, I'll, I'll read the whole thing through. So do this, my son, and deliver yourself. For you have come into the hand of your friend. Go and humble yourself. And then it's translated, plead with your friend, which certainly seems a far cry from anything related to arrogance or tempestuousness or, or stuff. But it, it has the idea uh the NET translates it, appeal firmly to your neighbor. It has that idea. Now we'll go to the translation note in the NET, which explains it. It has that idea of being bold, and it can be an arrogant boldness. It says the verb rahab means to act stormily, to act boisterously, or to act arrogantly. So this, in a positive sense, this is somebody who's going to plead his case and he's not going to back off and he's going to make sure he's listened to. Uh, the idea here that is in relation to uh, this, this, this verse in Psalms, uh, Proverbs 6.3, the idea here is a strong one. Storm against your neighbor. Importune him. You know, plead with him. Uh, the meaning is that he should be bold, this person should be bold and not take no for an answer. Okay, so NIV translates it, press your plea. Uh, the English version, beg him to release you. That, that's the idea. That, but the noun has the idea of being proud or arrogant. Now, this picks up a whole area. I'm going to stop here because when we get into the next area, we've got to tie about four threads together. We're going to look at the Yom, the sea. We're going to look at Leviathan, the Tanim, sometimes translated sea creatures. We're going to connect this to uh, Pharaoh in Egypt. We're going to connect this to a number of other things and tie it all together so that when you read Rahav here, you're going to understand its significance. It's not going to be a word that's just, well, I don't understand that. You're going to catch the whole whole significance of this. So we'll come back and start here uh, next time to go, work our way through this whole whole particular section. Father, thank you for this time we've had to, tonight. Thank you for your faithfulness, your omnipotence. Thank you for your faithful, loyal love to us. 
that no matter how we may fail you, no matter how we may disobey you, no matter how we may deny you even, you are always faithful, you are always loyal to your word, to your covenant, to your promise, and you will never leave us or forsake us. You will never take away that precious gift of eternal life that you have given us. It is grounded in the stability of your character. Uh, You are never shaken. You are unlike anything that we can even imagine You are the one-of-a-kind God who rules over his creature and who has made it possible for us to be saved and to be in union with Christ and to be in fellowship with you. And for that, we are grateful. May we not forget it. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.